All right, good morning. Welcome to episode 30 of The Plan. Uh, we are going through the entire story of the Bible, and this is the 30th sermon in that series. And we started in, in September with Genesis, and now we are in the ministry of Jesus, and we're actually beginning the journey towards the cross today. You know, Palm Sunday is next week, and Easter is the week after that. So this is all coming to a climax very soon. It's not coming to an end. The series will go through Acts and, and Revelation in May. But the, the key moment is coming, and we're beginning that journey today. And I'm really excited about seeing all these things from 30 sermons coming together. But before we get to that, we need to remind ourselves of the story that we've been telling over the past 29 weeks, the story that we've seen Scripture telling. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So God made the world, he put people in it, and he gave them a job. Their purpose is to rule the world on his behalf. And then he came down to live with them. And that was the seventh day, that was the day that he blessed, that was the goal. But human beings messed it up. And we kept messing it up, and we kept messing it up, and it was clear that God needed to intervene. And so he intervened through one family that we call the Israelites. And he decided to make them a special example to the rest of the world of what God's plan is supposed to look like because people didn't understand who God is or what he wanted. So he took this one people and he gave them one particular part of, piece of land and he gave them a purpose to live out that he laid out explicitly in the law of Moses and then he came to live with them in the temple. And so you have this place where God's people are living out his purpose in his presence and the whole world is supposed to be able to look at Israel and understand what it is that God wants for the world. They're supposed to get to know God through Israel. Turns out, whatever's wrong with humanity is wrong with Israel too, and they kept messing up just the way the rest of us did, and so, so that eventually God had to say, uh, God had to, to end the covenant. He said the covenant is broken because what they are doing does not represent my design. Israel is not, is not showing you what I want the world and humanity to look like, and so the only way he could reveal himself to the world was to say, I'm not that. <laughs> Whatever I want, it's not what they're doing. So it's been four or five hundred years since then, and Israel is still in exile. Some of them have come back to the promised land. Most of them have not, and they aren't in control of the land, and they've been waiting for God to restore them. And all of a sudden, this Jesus fellow shows up, and he says that he, God is restoring the world, restoring Israel to his plan, and, and ultimately fulfilling his plan through Jesus. And we've been looking at his ministry over the past few weeks, his ministry of proclaiming that news. So a few weeks ago, we talked about how he went out and announced the good news to the world. And the good news was that God is restoring Israel. The kingdom of God is coming. That's what that means. And so Israel is coming back into the plan. And then he, the next week, we talked about how he went around forgiving people and healing people and, and restoring people into uh, into what God's people are supposed to look like. So he's putting together a true Israel that can be ready when Jesus restores Israel to the plan. And then last week, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus preached to the Jews exactly what following God's plan would look like as opposed to what they were actually doing so that they would be able to get on board. Because remember, there's this ticking clock that Israel needs to choose to repent and follow God's plan before the path they're on leads them to destruction. But what Jesus hasn't really laid out for people is that central thing that all of this revolves around, which is how is God going to restore his people? 
Because so far he's been telling them, it's going to happen, get ready. This is what it looks like to be ready. But the question that we haven't been seeing the answer to is, what exactly is going to happen? Because the Jews were all speculating about what is going to happen. What's going to look like when God sorts all this out? They weren't spending quite as much time on how do we make sure we're ready for it. So today what we're going to do is we're going to start looking at the time when Jesus begins preparing his disciples for what it looks like for, for Jesus to accomplish this central thing that will restore the kingdom. So as we go into our opening passage, remember the way we keep our coordinates in a biblical story for the plan. We're watching for four things. Who is the story about? Who are God's people? Where is their home and what's their relationship with their home? How can they meet with God? How do they have access to his presence? And finally, what did God tell them to do? So we're going to jump into uh, the Gospel of Luke in a conversation that changes uh, the whole trajectory of what's going on. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Now this this reminds us of a really interesting thing about when Jesus went around preaching the gospel. When we preach the gospel, you can't do it without saying Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus was not going around announcing, I am the Messiah. He acknowledged it to some of his, to his followers in private and told them not to say anything. What we actually know is that Jesus was not preached to the world as Messiah until after Easter. But he does acknowledge to his disciples at this point that he is the Messiah. And that's a really big deal because the Messiah, that means anointed one. That basically means he is the heir to David. He is supposed to be the next king. And so as we look at our coordinates, we ask, uh, who is the story about? As it's been for the last few weeks, it is about Jesus and the Jews. The Jews are God's people, and Jesus is their leader. And we've known that Jesus was their leader, but God has appointed a variety of types of leaders. You know, Moses and Samuel and John the Baptist were leaders as prophets. We've known that Jesus was proclaimed to be God's son, but here is where he explicitly says, I am the Messiah, the anointed one. I'm going to be king. That is my claim to leadership in Israel. Where is their home? Their home right now we would describe as Galilee and Judea. And this is the main obstacle facing anyone who would claim to be Messiah. He's claiming to be king over Israel, but there currently is a king over Israel. He's actually a Caesar And he's divided the promised land into provinces, Galilee and Judea. So the Romans are the big obstacle to anyone claiming to be Messiah. And by this point, they're actually really good at killing people who claim to be Messiahs. They do it all the time. Um, There have been so many failed Messiahs at this point because that's the main obstacle is the Romans. Now at this point, how can God's people meet with God? A lot of them think they can meet with God in the temple. What we actually know is that there were quite a few Jews who weren't quite sure whether the second temple was legitimate. And so not all of them were, were super excited about the temple. But the te- if you were going to meet with God, the temple is supposed to be the place for it. Problem is, God didn't come back to the temple. And, but the good news is, God's presence is available in Jesus. So rather than finding God in the temple, you actually find God out in Galilee and when you encounter Jesus. 
Now, the last question is, what, did God, what, what instructions does God have for Jesus? And God doesn't speak in this passage, but when Jesus says that he is the Messiah, and he admits that he's the Messiah, he is essentially taking on a whole set of instructions, a whole vision that was cast in the Old Testament of what the Messiah was supposed to do. Messiah is a job. So when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, he's saying, I'm the one who's supposed to take on this job. And what is the job of the Messiah? Well, the best place where we can find that is in, just succinctly put, is in Psalm chapter 2. And we're going to read most of it, and you'll see. Remember, Messiah, Christ, they both mean anointed one. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You get in a, in a nutshell in this psalm the vision of what the Messiah is supposed to do. And the first thing the Messiah is supposed to do is he's supposed to take the throne in Jerusalem. Right? God says that he set up his king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. So the king is meant to come to Jerusalem, and, and he's meant to, the, the Messiah is meant to come to Jerusalem and become king. The other thing that this, actual, this, this psalm is actually about is the fact that once he's king, he's supposed to defeat the enemies of Israel. He's supposed to dash them to pieces like pottery. This is a very martial um, kind of, of psalm about the king ruling over other nations. Right? So this is what people were expecting from the Messiah. When Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, he's saying, I'm going to become king, and I'm going to defeat the enemies of Israel. So the question is, and, and he's basically saying, this is the way the kingdom's going to come. The question is, how is Jesus going to accomplish this? And this is where he starts cluing in his disciples about what that looks like. So we're going to pick up in the same conversation we left off in just the very next verse. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus tells this to disciples multiple times, and they don't understand. And it's really easy from our perspective, looking back, to say, why don't they understand? He just lays it out there really simply. It's really obvious what he's saying. It's not a complicated, there's no parables, there's no imagery, he just says it. But I don't think what's hard for them to understand is the statement he's making. The the thing that's hard for them to, to understand is, how does this statement link with him claiming to be the Messiah? How does this statement accomplish the vision of Psalm 2. It's kind of like if you were to take your car and like you need to replace the starter and you tell the guy, I need you to replace my starter. He says, okay, what I'm going to do is I am going to make a peanut butter and jam sandwich and eat it. Like you understand what he's saying, right? It's not, but what you don't understand is how him eating a peanut butter and jam sandwich fixes the starter in your car. That's what you don't understand. So when Jesus says, I'm going to go, when he talks about the chief priests and the teachers and the elders, that means he's going to Jerusalem. So he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, which is a big deal for them. 
because of what it means for the Messiah to go to Jerusalem. But when I get there, I'm going to suffer and die and, be, and raise, rise from the dead. Like, okay, what does that do? They, they don't understand how this could accomplish the mission of the Messiah. So Jesus told his disciples he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He, I, I should have put one more blank that he said he was going to rise again, but that's not the hard part to understand. The suffering and dying is the hard part for his disciples to understand. And so the question is, why does Jesus believe that he needs to suffer and die instead of lead an army and conquer the Romans? Because that's what they were expecting. And, and there's actually... The, the Jews had their own ex- expectations about what Jesus was supposed to do. And then we have now a different set of expectations that I, I find to not be entirely scriptural, uh, which is that we think that, we, I mean, I was, I was raised in Sunday school on the idea that Jesus needed to die because God was angry at humanity for sinning, and he couldn't get over that until somebody died. Like he's got to hit somebody, and Jesus steps in the way, and takes the hit so that God can forgive us. Because if, it's, if, if he doesn't, then God is incapable of forgiving humanity. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look now at what Jesus shows us about his reason why he believes that he needs to come and die. Because usually when we talk about why Jesus died, we look at the letters. And we look at what Paul said about why Jesus died. and those kind of, But we don't often look at what Jesus said. So I want to start by looking at the the evidence that Jesus gives us of why he needed to die. He doesn't give us very much because his normal answer is to fulfill Scripture because he's doing what he's supposed to do. But he does give us a few clues about exactly why it is that that his method, his approach, uh, deals with the human condition. So let's, let's pick up, as they're journeying to Jerusalem, he has this... He intervenes in an argument between his disciples about who's the greatest. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." So Jesus says, I didn't come here to conquer and dominate people as king. That's not the kind of king that I came to be. I came to serve my people and to give my life as a ransom. Now, the Greek word that they, that they translate as ransom, you know what it means? It means ransom. Um, it, it means the payment, it comes from the, the word for releasing, like loosening someone from slavery or bondage, and it's the, the payment that makes that possible which is what a ransom is. But often, if you're, if you're raised in the Sunday school classes I was raised in, or, or you're taught in the theology that, that a lot of people are taught in, uh, the ransom, you're, he's ransoming us from God. Right? That God's the one who's demanding a payment, and he needs that to be satisfied before he will let us out. God's the jailer demanding payment, and Jesus is the one who makes the payment. Which technically that could be what ransom means, except that if you connect this idea of ransom with the other things that the other clues that Jesus gives us, that's not what he's talking about. I'm going to give you another clue that you don't pick up on in English translations, but it's really telling. 
There is a story that unfortunately we won't have time to get into. If we did all the stories I want to do for the plan, it would take us like three years to get through it. So the transfiguration didn't make it. But uh, they go on, Jesus takes three of his disciples on a mountain, and um, while they're up there, suddenly he starts glowing like a light bulb and is surrounded by a cloud, and these amazing things happen. And, and here's one key thing that happens in Luke's, uh, in Luke's description. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was, he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing about this verse. If you read it in Greek, do you know what the word for departure is? Anybody know what the Greek word for departure is? It's in the, notice that the names that we have for Old Testament books are actually Greek. The word for departure is exodus. The Greek word in that verse is exodus. So Jesus is talking to Moses about the exodus he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. What is he connecting his mission with? He's connecting it with the story of the Passover, the story of exodus, which is when God ransomed his people out of slavery to an evil power. In, Passover, in, in, in the Exodus, they were not freed from slavery to God. God is the one who saved them out of slavery to an evil power. Now, you may say, that's a lot to build out of one word. Oh, sorry, here's the slide where I actually show you. It's Exodus. I forgot to do that. It's part of the big reveal. Um, where was I? <laughs> So that may seem like a lot to make out of one word, but then I'm going to point something out to you. When somebody pointed out to me, it smacked me in the face of like just obvious, like this has been staring at me the whole time. Here's the thing. Who decided when Jesus would go to Jerusalem and confront the, the powers and die? Whose choice was that? It was Jesus' choice, right? Jesus provoked this. They didn't come out to Galilee and get him. Jesus went to Jerusalem, and, and we're going to talk next week about the showdown that he forces. It's because Jesus decided it would happen. Jesus could have done that at any festival he wanted. Jesus chose the day it would happen. What day did he choose? What festival did he choose? Passover. Jesus made the choice to associate what he was going to do with one particular part of the calendar. Interestingly, he didn't pick the Day of Atonement. He picked Passover when all of Israel is supposed to gather in one place and remember how God freed them from slavery to an evil power. So Jesus saw his mission as a new exodus when God frees his people from an evil power. We don't need to be freed from God. We need to be freed from an evil power. Now, that pushes on our categories, but it actually fits right into the, the categories of the people Jesus is talking to. That excites them. Like, yeah, we want an exodus because they, they're all concerned about an evil power that has them in slavery. But who's the evil power they're thinking of? It's Rome. Because the original exodus was the enemy was Egypt. It was a king and an empire. And they're like, hey, we're dominated by a king and an empire now, and the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to liberate us from a new empire. And so Jesus is going to push back against that misconception as well. One of the things we haven't talked about very much in Jesus' ministry, at all actually, is his exorcisms. Jesus was known for doing exorcisms. And the interesting thing about his exorcisms is they were not prophesied about in the Old Testament. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says that, there's going to be, that Messiah is going to do exorcisms, that it'll happen when God comes back. There's none of that. So Jesus is doing exorcisms to make a, a point. 
And we see that point made at one of the exorcisms that he does on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebul. We'll pause there and notice what this tells us about how Jesus thinks about exorcisms. For Jesus, exorcisms are a form of warfare against Satan. Because when they say, oh, he's using Satan to drive out Satan, they might not be thinking of exorcisms as warfare. And Jesus points out, no, I'm, I'm making war on Satan. Why would Satan give me the power to defeat him? That doesn't make sense. If you, if you give you know, your nuclear launch codes to your enemy, that's not how you win. right? That's a terrible way. So why would he do that? Clearly, if I am driving out demons, then I am Satan's enemy. I'm conquering Satan. He says, now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, if they, so then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the thing is, there are other people who drive out demons. But Jesus is not just an exorcist. He's a person who, who God gives the power to drive out demons, who also claims to be bringing the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, hey, if I was lying about the kingdom, God wouldn't be giving me the power to drive out demons. But if I can drive out demons by the power of God, then that means that I'm, I'm bringing the kingdom like I say I am. And so he gives them one last picture. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Who's the strong man? Strong man is Satan. Jesus is saying, if, if, I, can, if, if I can come into his house and take people out from his power, clearly I'm defeating him. Clearly he must be tied up because he's not going to just let me bring people in. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm fighting a war with Satan, and I'm winning. That's what these exorcisms prove to you, is that I'm fighting with Satan, and I'm winning. So the evil power that Jesus intended to overthrow was Satan, not Rome. Now here's the tricky thing, though, is that we've been looking, this is only the third time we've talked about Satan in this sermon series, and the first time was just to point out that he doesn't actually appear in the garden. Because the story that we tell about Satan is not really based on what the Bible says about Satan. We try and fill in his biography a lot more than we, than we can. And the big thing is we say that Satan is this rebel against God who tried to overthrow God, which never quite made sense to me because you think an archangel would know you can't overthrow God. But what we've actually been pointing out is that in the Old Testament, Satan is uh, a member of God's court who has a very particular job. He is God's prosecutor. He is the one who goes around and points out when people are, are being righteous or not, maybe points out potential flaws in God's, um, God's justice. So what he does in Job. He's like, hey, this Job guy is, really likes you a lot, but you also give him a lot of stuff. So maybe it's just because you give him stuff that you like. So, so that's Satan's role. And the last place we see Satan in the Old Testament is accusing Israel when God is considering restoring them after the exile. Remember, the, Zechariah has a vision. The angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. Satan's job at this point, because he is God's prosecutor, his attorney general, is he makes sure to 
that everybody gets punished to the full extent of the law. And Satan's standing next to Joshua, who's representing Israel, saying, they haven't repented, they're not worthy, they, they disobeyed you at every turn, you can't forgive them. They're not worth it. They don't deserve it. That's what been Satan's role. So Satan was Israel's accuser. His job was to make sure that they were punished for breaking the covenant. So the question then is, how does Satan come into this as being the enemy of Jesus? Well, we're going to look at another story where Jesus, Jesus starts bringing up Satan more as they get closer to Jerusalem. And there's this encounter that they have where there's a woman who has been bent over. She's been, her back has been, has some kind of condition where she's been bent over for a very long time. And Jesus heals her on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And the leaders get mad because they say, that's work. You have six days of the week that you can do that. Don't do it on the Sabbath. And Jesus makes a very important point about this, about how Sabbath is the best day to do this. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Sabbath is the day of God's new creation. The Sabbath is the day that we're supposed to live as much as we can as if the plan has been restored. Isn't that the day that someone should be set free from bondage? But notice, bondage to who? Satan. This crippling experience that she's had is bondage to Satan. Now, why would that be bondage to Satan? Well, remember, Satan's job is to make sure that Israel is punished for breaking the covenant. Among, you make sure that people get, get you know, that the justice is done in the terms of punishing people for what they deserve. When Israel is in a state of having broken the covenant, and there are curses that come with that. Okay? So, Deuteronomy says, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. When Israel is in a state of broken covenant, they receive the curses that show that they are that they've broken the covenant, that they're not receiving God's protection. And so actually, all the things that Jesus heals could fit under the category of covenant curses, of evidence that Israel is not right with God. It's not necessarily to say that this particular woman was especially evil, and that's why she was crippled. Um, I, I have no idea what her spiritual state was, but Israel experienced these curses as a community. So the reason why she was crippled was because Israel was in a state of failure, of having broken the covenant, and so she was in the power of Satan, because Satan is the one who makes sure that those covenant curses happen. Satan is not just prosecutor, he's also kind of jailer. And that's what Satan pushes for. And so they are in slavery, they are in bondage to Satan, because the covenant hasn't been, they haven't been saved out of the broken covenant. But that just pushes us back to, well, why haven't they been saved from the, the broken covenant? Is that because God can't forgive them yet because he won't forgive them unless somebody dies? Well, no, God has already told them what they have to do to be restored to the covenant. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, 
Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. What does Israel need to do to be restored after breaking the covenant? They need to repent and return to God, right? Which is exactly what Jesus has been preaching. And John the Baptist, repent and obey. Return to God. But for the last 500 years, the Israelites have been going in every direction except returning to God. Remember, they came back to Jerusalem, and Ezra and Nehemiah led them in a plan that was not God's design for God's people. It was a, let's keep the Gentiles as far away from us as we can, and let's focus on the meticulous rule-keeping, and and at any cost, and it failed, right? And they've been trying that plan for 500 years, and Jesus is telling them, what you're doing is not God's plan. You have not actually returned to God. You are not actually living the way that God has called you to live. So the reason why they're in Satan's power is because they've broken the covenant and they've refused to walk through the door that God opened for them. Right? God gives them the door to return to me. The only way you can get out of this is to come back to me and walk the path I called you on, and they refuse to walk it. So Satan had power over Israel because they had broken the covenant and still refused to return to God's plan. So who's the ultimate obstacle to Israel's salvation, to Israel's restoration? Israel is. We are our own worst enemies. It's the amazing thing about the Bible when you tell the story and you realize, if, if you, know, you have the categories like the protagonist is the person who drives the story forward and the antagonist is the one who's in, in their way. You realize the protagonist is God. It's God's story. You find out, wait a minute, the, the antagonist, the bad guy? It's been us the whole time. We're the obstacle. It's, it's because we, we don't return to God. It's not because God won't forgive us. It's because we won't return to him and we won't accept the forgiveness. We decide to try other ways of, of living out God's plan. We decide to try just our, whatever of our own plans we can come up with. But there's something about us, something in us, our sinful nature. We get sucked into the power of sin, and, and we can't see our way out. It's like, it's like a bee trap. This, I just thought of this. It's like a bee trap. You know how those work when you got the cone? Because they come up into the cone and then they get stuck because they can't figure out that if they went back to the hole at the top of the cone and out, they could get, they can get out at any time, but there's something about bees that can't figure out to just go back down the hole they came in, right? That's human beings. We're like bees. And so if Israel is going to get restored, somebody has to deal with this power of sin that's got them entangled and that keeps them from being able to return to God, this pattern that they get sucked into. Because the Israelites, for after 500 years, if they've proven anything, it's that they can't get themselves out of it. So that's what Jesus is going to do. And so right before they head into Jerusalem, Jesus calls his disciples together for one last pep talk. One last, all right, let's go over the plan again. I want you guys all to know what's going to happen. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered up to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Now, when he says everything the prophets said about the Son of Man, it's not just, the the prophets said a lot more about 
uh, about the fulfillment of God's plan than just those details that Jesus lined out. So those are the means by which it's going to be fulfilled. But when he says it's going to fulfill everything they said, that means the whole promise is going to get fulfilled through the process of Jesus being tortured and executed and resurrected. All the promises that we've been talking about, everything that you're hoping for is finally going to happen through this process that I'm telling you I'm about to undergo. So through his death, Jesus would free Satan, Israel from Satan's power by dealing with their sin and their guilt. Now, how exactly that works, there is a mystery at the heart of that. We're going to talk more about that as we, at Easter, and I'm not going to spoil my Easter sermon. I wouldn't do that. So we'll get more into kind of looking closer at, at how that's supposed to work uh, at Easter. But for now, it's important that we know that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that part of you that just can't seem to do things right no matter how many times you try, you know, I think that, that metaphor, that, that image of the woman being bent over is really powerful because that is often what sin does to you, right? It's not just that you did something wrong and then you go back to normal and, and you get a fresh, you know, clean slate. Every time you do something wrong, it kind of it weighs on you, right? And it can distort you and it can, it can build up on you and bend you over. And, and sometimes we can say, well, I'm just going to pretend that I'm not, that sin isn't affecting me. I'm just, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. But you're still you're still bent over, right? You're pretending that you're fine, but you're still bent over. The truth is that sin has this power over us that we get sucked into, and we all need to be freed from that, and just walking around like this, pretending that we're not bent over is not the solution. Someone needs to straighten us out. So that's the thing, is that Jesus didn't have to overcome Rome or the Jews or God's anger. He overcame the power of human sin and guilt. That's what lay at the heart of it. It's this, this thing that bends us down in ways... Because the thing is, when your back hurts, you're pretty cranky, right? It's, it's, it's harder to get along with people when you're in constant pain. And that, that's a good metaphor for what happens to us. Is as we're sucked into the power of evil, you know, that, it, it is, it is the, the source of all the destruction, the pain, and everything that happens in this world, everything negative that happens in this world. And Jesus, that's what Jesus came to overcome, the obstacle wasn't God's anger that he just can't get over. God doesn't need anger management training. It's, it's what we keep doing and the power that that takes over us. And so for those of you who feel like this, we all have felt like this, and I bet all of us feel this way at least a little bit right now at any given point. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus has the power to free us from our patterns of sin and guilt and enable us to stand straight again. He has the power to not only help you avoid one more cycle of the sin and guilt cycle where you, you, know, you do something wrong and then you correct in the wrong way or you just don't deal with it and it weighs down on you. All those ways, that the failed ways we try and get ourselves out of sin. Not only does he help us stop going through those cycles, but he actually stands us up straight again. He actually restores us. He changes us into people who can live out the way God wants us to live our lives, the way he made us to live in this world so that we can fulfill the plan. Because remember, we are the obstacle to the plan working. And God, can, Jesus can transform us. So for any one of you who is struggling with sin, with the weight of sin, with the guilt, with feeling like you can't get out of that, that cycle, Jesus has the power to free you from it. The last thing I want us to remember 
is that Jesus looked at a world where his people were dominated by the Romans. Well, his, his people were dominated by the Jewish leaders who were taking them down the wrong path. And they were all dominated by the Romans. And there was all kinds of, of, of horrible things going on in that time. And Jesus came in and looked at the problem and diagnosed it as sin. The power of sin. Not the Romans, not even the Jewish leaders, but sin. And he came to address that. He didn't destroy the Roman Empire. He destroyed the power of sin. And we, as God's people, we take on the same mission as Jesus, right? Whatever Jesus came to do, we are meant to serve that cause, right? That means that we are meant to serve that same purpose and fight that same battle. Jesus' enemies are our enemies. And only Jesus' enemies are our enemies. And Paul tells us, he tells the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What Jesus is telling the Ephesians there is he's saying, look, I know that you think like the emperor and the, the Roman soldiers around you and, and the, the Jews who are throwing you out of synagogues and the, the guy down the street who, who you know, doesn't, keep, you know, doesn't follow the HOA rules for taking care of his lawn, like, you think that they're the enemy. But the enemy is actually the power of sin, and that's who we're fighting. That's what makes sense of Jesus' command to love your neighbor. You love your neighbor, or you love your enemy, because your enemy isn't actually your enemy. Your enemy is held in the power of the true enemy, which is sin and guilt and the weight of, of human failure that just builds up power and entraps all of us. So as we follow Jesus, we fight the same battle as him, not against people, but against the power of sin over their lives. And the best news for us taking on that mission is that we don't have to defeat sin all over again. Jesus has defeated the power of sin, and what we do is we connect people with the one who has defeated sin. We invite them to know Jesus, to be released, to be healed. We don't, I'm not the one who can do it, but I know the one who can do it. And that's our mission. And that's why it's so important that the way we deal with our enemies does not drive them away from the one who can actually heal them. As we close, I'm going to ask you to consider what next step God may be putting in front of you. There's a lot of things. Maybe he's putting a, a name, a person on your heart. Maybe he's putting something that you need to do. or I don't know what he's putting on your heart. But there are a few things that he might be. The first one is give your life to Jesus. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, he's putting it on your heart today. <laughs> he's putting it on your heart every time you hear the word of God, that you can give your life to him and you can be restored and you can be freed from the power of sin and you can have that hope in Jesus. And so if that's you, then we encourage you today to, to answer that call. You can come forward during the last song. You can talk with one of our ministers after the service. If you're watching online, you can get in touch with the church or you can talk to a, a Christian that you know and trust. But don't let another day go by without finding healing in Jesus. Another thing God might be calling you to do is to join a small group or a service team. These are ways that you can get connected with the people of God and you can, can you know, small groups are where we help each other to live out this new life that we've been given. And we build each other up and, and we just go through life together. Uh, service teams are opportunities where you can serve others and you can build the kingdom by serving others in the church, serving others in our community. You can sign up for one of those through a connect card. 
The last thing is if you're interested in getting in committing to a congregation that is seeking to live out God's kingdom and to live out this renewal and this, this freedom from uh, evil, from sin, in this community, that's who we're seeking to be. And so if you'd like to find out more about becoming a member here, you can sign up for a Connect class on your Connect card, and we'll schedule one of those where we talk about who we are, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. So I encourage you to consider taking one of those steps as we stand and sing our final song.